0: Now, OX at your service. Welcome to Nothing Impossible, sponsored by BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy. Now, Nothing Impossible on OX.
1: Welcome in, Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan with you on our show where we converse about local innovation. And we're going to take you to the Magic House, first of all, on the program today uh, as uh, the Made Maker Space in the Del Mar Loop opens up again. It's a great place. For kids to go and learn about STEM careers, learn how to build things, maybe not use the water jet until they're of a certain age. <laughs> Travis Sheridan, <laughs>
2: yeah, well, it's a—I uh, mean, it's called Made for Kids, and it's uh, their entree into the, the maker movement.
1: Yeah, really cool space. We've been to the Made Maker Space, done a whole show from there. Just love all the stuff. You've certainly made some cool stuff using these cool machines. Space.
2: Yeah, I, it's it's interesting. I often hear it referred to as uh, the adult makerspace, and I'm I'm always wondering, like, what are people making in there? <laughs> if it's an adult makerspace, uh, but uh, I don't. I think it's all PG thirteen at at worst.
1: <laughs> and then we're going to talk to LaShana Lewis, who's the executive director of the St. Louis Equity and Entrepreneurship Collective. They've been doing a kind of an audit of how equitable access is to support organizations, to investment for startups and small business owners in the St. Louis area. Uh, Entrepreneurship is a huge uh, gateway for folks, and we got to make sure that everybody's got the same and fair access to the resources.
2: Absolutely. And coming out of or in the midst of this COVID pandemic, there are a number of people that are probably, uh, maybe we'll call them reluctantly entrepreneurial or forced into entrepreneurship due to downsizing and layoffs. And so we want to make sure that there are resources available, not just for those that want to follow a dream, but are pursuing something out of necessity.
1: And the Equity and Entrepreneurship Collective uh, grew out of BioSTL. And speaking of people reinventing themselves, our next uh, segment is going to be with Confluence Discovery Technologies. They've researched a possible treatment for COVID-19. And a lot of the scientists at Confluence used to work for Mm, let's say, a big multinational drug company with a research campus in West St. Louis County, (laughs) until there were layoffs, and they thought, what are we going to do? Well, we were doing this research. Why don't we just start our own company and continue the research? And that's how this company, Confluence Discovery Technologies, came about, and also how they wound up uh, working on this drug, which now they believe could be used to treat COVID patients.
2: Again, another example of maybe not entrepreneurship by choice, but entrepreneurship out of necessity and look at the impact that they could have.
1: Yeah. So we've got a lot coming up on this edition of the show. Stay tuned. We'll get right into it next with the Magic House. BioSTL presents Nothing Impossible on KMOX.
0: Welcome back to Nothing Impossible, sponsored by BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy on KMOX.
1: Welcome back. Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan with you on our weekly innovation conversation, and let's take you to the Del Mar Loop and to Kirkwood and get the latest on a place where local kids can really learn about uh, STEM careers and entrepreneurialism. Carrie Hutchcraft from the Magic House is with us. Thank you so much, Carrie.
3: Thank you for having me on.
2: Carrie, tell us about uh, what the Magic House experience is like in the Made STL location.
3: Certainly. So um, we actually opened uh, the Magic House Made for Kids. So sometimes we'll call it just Made for Kids. Um, almost a year ago, exactly. And so um, for those of you that are familiar with the downstairs adult makerspace, Made, we are sort of a an extension. But if you think of it in the sense of instead of expe- extending over the age of those visitors, we're kind of going down to those younger visitors. And so um, Made stands for makers, artists, designers, and entrepreneurs. And uh, we really are highlighting those four areas in our makerspace um, upstairs of that location.
1: So we've done the tour of the maid space and tech shop before that and all of the really cool, also somewhat dangerous, but really cool (laughs) equipment that they've got downstairs. (laughs) How is the upstairs space different? Is it still where people can go to build physical products Mm -hmm. and, and create
3: things? Yes. So, we are basically taking, you know, we're inspired by what's downstairs, and we have a lot of those same experiences, but we have them in a much safer space. So, um, our facility was designed really with um, children ages four to 14 in mind. And and so, they can do a lot of the same things. So, we have a 3D printer, and they have the ability to do some coding that they can then print on our printer. Uh, We have laser cutting with um, a different kind of laser cutter that um, lends itself to be a little bit more friendly for our young visitors that are using in the space. Um, We have everything from game design and stop motion animation. Um, So really some of the things that you'll see downstairs on the lower level, but again, with that younger visitor in mind. Um, But all things from, you know, letting that creativity go wild. So we have um, the areas that we have broken up is we have our maker space. We have an artist studio, which has everything from daily clay play um, with the ability to fire your clay creation in our kiln to a digital um, painting easel without paint actually. Um, We also have our design lab and that's where you can do the 3D printing. Uh, You can build and create a rocket. And then we have that entrepreneur thread throughout there as well. So it's definitely a younger experience than you'll find um, downstairs, but also aged up a little bit from what you might find in our Kirkwood location. It, Carrie, a lot of the
2: things that you were mentioning, if I reflect back on my grade school, middle school, and high school experience, a lot of those uh, tools and activities, some of that vocational hands-on mm-hmm. training was available in school systems, but I mean that's a lot of that has gone by the wayside. Is this right. are you seeing this as a nice opportunity to introduce kids to a, a whole new career field that might not be available to them through their mm-hmm. traditional educational system?
3: Most certainly, and so I think that's what's really exciting about this space is that we do know that you know schools have changed, and while we're you know while there's definitely some some interest in STEM and STEAM in particular, um, you know, and more and more growing programs in schools, there's also um, you know like you said that missing piece of it sometimes, and so we want kids to come here and maybe get inspired by something that they created in our space, and then also maybe learn that downstairs is an opportunity for them to you know grow up, get into school and actually continue to make a career out of making and creating. Um, And so I think it's just, you know, it's an exciting venture. It's fun for kids when they come, but it's really, um, our hope is that it also has a lasting impact and inspiring them um, as far as what they want to look into in the future.
1: How is this a, a step up or in terms of, I guess, age brackets uh, mm-hmm. from the Magic House in Kirkwood to the made-for-kids yeah. space and then maybe older teenager moves downstairs? Uh, how is right. this uh, coordinated with the, with the Magic House?
3: So, you know, at the Magic House, what we typically have found is that, you know, our sweet spot really is from toddler up until elementary school. But we found that for many of our local visitors that have come, you know, year over year to the Magic House, that by the time they hit that middle school age, sometimes they feel like they've kind of aged out of our experience in Kirkwood. Oh. Um, there's certainly some fun things that they can do there, but um, it's kind of a perception that they think, okay, I'm, I'm too old for that now. And so this new location um, really expands upon our age reach and that there are some things at the new location that really are designed for that older middle school age child um the kid that really wants to get deeper into a discipline get to experience it a little bit more um and so we definitely have expanded our reach and then you know it, I think the, from the very beginning when we partnered with uh, Cortex, it was, you know, about also kind of creating this funnel that, okay, we're going to get them when they're kids and we're going to inspire them. We're going to get them excited about these features. And then eventually the hope is that they move downstairs to the adult maker space as a career or a hobby um, and that we really do have kind of a flow of visitors from, you know, infant in the Kirkwood location all the way up to adulthood when they move down to made um, the adult maker space.
2: You know that that continuum uh, is really critical because we you know we talk to if I think about either entrepreneurs or corporates that are looking for talent, oftentimes they know they have a talent need now, right mm-hmm. They might have vacant positions now, but we have an aging population, right? We have a number of baby boomers that are going to be retiring in the next few years and and so a lot of these folks know that they're going to have uh, you know, a a bigger talent problem in 15 years. So it sounds like uh, Made for Kids is, you know, helping produce the talent that, that we will need in a society.
3: Well, that's what we're really hoping, you know, we're hoping that we can inspire them now as children. And so when they are thinking about, you know, once they have that time where they get to pick the courses that they get to take in school, that, you know, something maybe sparks them now to have that interest, that they will continue to engage in that. I will say another sort of exciting piece that's come out of our location is um, when we moved to the location, which we're right off of Delmar, Mar, um, we had made a decision to hire our high school college age staff from the community, the surrounding community. And um, I think what's been really exciting to also see is a lot of new staff members that were new to our organization That were also um, introduced to a lot of this technology And so even beyond those middle schoolers, we have some high school students that now know how to work a laser uh, cutter And know how to work the 3d printer and we're you know, even though they're a little bit old for our regular target We've been able to engage a lot of those new staff members in this as well
2: Carrie, I wanted to ask a question uh, because, you know, we're, we're in the midst of COVID-19. People have been doing a lot less with their hands in physical places other than on their keyboard. Uh, Are the kids that visit made by, made for, uh, made for kids, uh, do they, do they learn skills that they can do at home to keep the making going in the midst of maybe some isolation?
3: Yes, that is um, really the way that we design the space is that many of the things that we have there, we hope, are also experiences that you take home. So, for example, with our 3D printer, obviously we have the 3D printer and that's not something that most families have in their home. But the uh, system that we use to um, have the child actually do the coding on the front end is something that's available to anyone with a web browser and Internet. So, um, we have things like that throughout the space so that kids that do get really excited about something can continue that experience at home, similar to, um, the stop motion animation. It's a free app that we use and we tell people what that app is so that they can go home and continue that fun at home. We have, um, you know, for stop motion video, we have kind of sets and we have everything created so that, you know, they have all of the Lego tools and they have the backgrounds to really amp up that. But um, our hope is that they're continuing that fun when they go home. And that, you know, while we'd love to see them come every day, we know that's not realistic. But if (laughs) they were excited about it, we don't want to stop them from being able to continue that fun just because they're not at our facility.
1: Carrie, how is the access, you mentioned hiring especially high school students from the surrounding community, but how is access for younger students in the surrounding school mm-hmm. districts, Travis mentioned they may not have these kinds of programs in their school, uh, they may not go there on their free time, are, there, are, are most of the visitors to MAID kids being brought by their parents on a mm-hmm. weekend or are they organized school groups?
3: It's definitely a variety. So we were really fortunate to receive some wonderful funding from the Boeing company this past school year that helped provide free field trips for um, any school district in need. And so what that uh, ensured is that we, there were no barriers for schools. And, and with us being in that location as well for all of the St. Louis public uh, schools, they had a really close um, drive to get to us where while we've always offered free programming in our Kirkwood location, you know, the bus ride to Kirkwood is, is definitely a longer trip. And so, you know, it was a combination. We also had an amazing partnership with the St. Louis Public Library where you could rent um, a pass to Made for Kids just using your library card. So we really lowered any barriers possible to make sure that any family regardless of their income still had access to be able to come and visit so obviously with covid uh, things are on a little bit of a hold but we are really excited and anxious to be able to um, you know bring field trip programming back in the fall if that is allowed as well as to reopen our library partnership again um, because we do we want to make sure that you know every family that wants to come has the opportunity uh, when we set up uh, the pricing structure we really, you know, set that up in mind with making sure that even the price alone, if you were going to pay the full rate, was not a determining factor. So admission there is just $5 per person. It is a subsidized rate from what the rate, the actual cost of coming for a visit would be. Um, but we wanted to make sure that that was available for families that didn't even feel like they had to ask for um, free admission, that they really felt like, if they wanted to come, um, in addition to the free opportunities that might be available, they would have that. And we also have very affordable membership rates, which we, which are $50 per year. That's unlimited access for your family to come as many times as you want.
2: So let's talk, as we're wrapping up here, we only have a, a couple more moments, but as we're, as we're looking at reopening, what does that look like? What does uh, Made for Kids look like in a, uh, I won't call it a post-COVID world, but I know it's not <laughs> gone yet, but in a... COVID impacted world.
3: Yeah. So we have definitely changed some of our procedures. Um, most notably is that we have limited um, capacity. So we are only opening capacity at the moment at just 25% of our traditional capacity there. So that when you come, uh, there are far, you know, there's a far few families in the facility and they're able to spread apart um, into kind of family unit areas without Access to other families. So that's definitely a big piece that we did also change to have uh, registration in advance to help us control the attendance numbers and make sure that um, we are able to, you know, control how many people are coming in the building. Um, So those are two big determining uh, big changes that we've made. Some other things that we've done is actually create individual kits of activity supplies. So traditionally, when you come in, um, you have access to, let's say, markers, crayons, pencils that are shared between visitors right now. You're going to get a bag that has a a bunch of goodies that are just for you. So if you don't want to share a supply with somebody else, you want to make sure that you're the only one that's touched your scissors. It's a, it's a single use kind of um, access to make sure that, that there's no cross contamination. And of course our staff is out there in full force, um, wiping, cleaning, uh, encouraging hand sanitizer, uh, and really, you know, going, um, doing all that they can to make sure that everyone is confident and, um, enjoying their time in a safe way.
1: And you can get more information at magichouse.org. I understand you can make reservations at magichouse.org slash reservations. Exactly. Carrie Hutchcraft of the Magic House and Made for Kids. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it.
3: Thank you so much. It was great to talk with you.
1: We'll
2: be back with more Nothing Impossible. Stick around right after this.
0: Welcome back to Nothing Impossible, sponsored by BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy on KMOX.
2: Welcome back to Nothing Impossible, Travis Sheridan and Michael Calhoun, and we are joined by Lashana Lewis. She is the Executive Director in St. Louis Equity and Entrepreneurship Collective. Thanks for joining us, Lashana.
4: Hey, folks. Thank you so much for inviting me.
2: So uh, first of all, what is this collective?
4: Um, basically it is a group, uh, a a bunch of ESOs and I'll try to stop throwing in a bunch of, uh, acronyms there because i worked in corporate america so i know it's like acronyms are everywhere esos are entrepreneurial uh support organizations so basically the organizations you go to when you're starting your company for the first time to kind of help you get your footings and bearings and and navigate your way around uh your your startup so uh basically a bunch of those as well as entrepreneurs and investors you you're thinking the VCs and and all of that good stuff, family foundations, et cetera, decided to get together and address the problem with what racial equity and gender parity and the entrepreneurial realm in the St. Louis region. So uh, basically we've been in existence since 2016 um, through a fabulous grant through the Kaufman Foundation and um, through help with BioSTL who kind of had the brainchild to even get the group of people together. Um, this is the very first time that the collective has decided to hire staff. Uh, I told them, you know, I've got some crazy ideas that will move us forward, and they're in for the ride. So, um, yeah, so that's pretty much uh, what we are and kind of how we're starting off now in uh, 2020.
1: So before you, you look ahead at, at what you can do, uh, how do you evaluate Uh, the situation in St. Louis for startup founders and whether there is equitable access to all of those resources out there? How how do you evaluate where we stand?
4: Oh, no, that's a good question. Um, For the most part, uh, we kind of got together, had a summit in 2016, asked a lot of questions, a lot of questions. Uh, it was like a half day, everybody's eating lunch and and trying to delve straight into everything. So instead of it just being data and getting surveys and things like that, it was like, let's all sit down and talk, real talk. What is going on and what's keeping people from getting what they need to be successful in their entrepreneurial endeavors, especially within those two demographics I've mentioned with uh, women and uh, people of color. So... Um, after that was uh, housed, a, an independent party did come in and actually do a little bit more investigation, try to dig a little bit more into the data aspect of it. Uh, and then kind of on a regular basis, we're going out, we're talking to the community, we're having convenings, we're presenting more information and material, getting a lot more feedback. And it's kind of this collaborative effort as opposed to this top-down heavy kind of uh, authoritarian model where you got to get all the stuff done Done that uh, we think that you need to get done. So it's a lot more back and forth between us and the community that we're serving.
1: And so uh, when you talk about that study, what, what uh, results came out of
4: that? Um, for the most part, it's, uh, I like to say, a lot common sense. Uh, a lot of women and people of color who start businesses, they don't have a safety net. Uh, a lot of businesses that do uh, tend to make those mistakes, pivot, do all these other sorts of things. And we've seen it in different companies that have come out of Silicon Valley, where maybe they started off doing one particular product and then they pivoted and then they became a, a different type of product. Um, but they still have that chance to stumble and fall. Um, but unfortunately, especially with women and with people of color who start businesses when they stumble and fall, they may not have a friends and family round to to help them out again, or they don't have, you know, some backup fund that'll just give them a second chance. So a lot of that uh, is kind of the impetus of where we're starting. But as well as uh, sometimes they can't even get into some of these you know, great accelerators and things of that nature to even know how to formulate things for their own businesses. So it's a combination of getting the resources to, to these entrepreneurs as well as trying to get the capital to them.
2: Lashana, you know we we hear oftentimes, and this probably comes out of Silicon Valley the most. You know this idea of celebrate failure, right? Uh, right. But wouldn't you? Have, I mean, just to say that there has to be an amazing—you have to have an amazing amount of privilege to be able to say that you're going to celebrate failure because you have that safety net, whether it's venture capitalists or you know rich parents or whatever it might be. But you alluded to the fact that you know a lot of Black and Brown entrepreneurs, a lot of women don't have that same safety net. So how, how is this collective helping them? Not necessarily, you know, we don't want to celebrate failures, but mitigate those failures or uh, look for a way to be strong so that they may not have the same types of failures.
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. And I'll say that I'm an entrepreneur myself. I actually have a company called Ellen Lewis Consulting. Um, and what I do is diversity consulting. Um, I'll just say that when I started in 2018, um, I didn't give it get as much fervor. <laughs> so there wasn't a lot of money coming in. Uh, a lot of people were very kind of tiptoey. Um, but uh, one of the things I faced personally as a, a woman of color, as a queer person that's that's out uh, is that you know, people are kind of skeptical and they don't know if they want to um, kind of help get help from, from me or that I might kind of go too hard <laughs> with give, giving too, too much of the help. And uh, one of the things I had to get over personally was that, you know, if people need this help, I need to be out there and I need to not be afraid of what they think about me. And as I talk, start to talk to more Women us uh, more uh, black and brown people more queer people who are starting businesses um, I tell people all of this is a two-way street, you know Yes We got to get them the resources and the capital and et cetera But at the same time we kind of build up their mojo and say look, you know, you can do this This is something that people need and you're going to run into those, you know uh, jerks that are going to tell you the opposite but you have to kind of have confidence in yourself that you Developed this idea because you knew there was a need and uh, just because you may not see That that onslaught of people right away uh, as with my diversity Consulting in the last week my calendar just started filling up um, I knew that it was a need that needed to be met and maybe the market wasn't Necessarily aware enough of me, but that doesn't mean that your business doesn't need to exist
2: You know we we hear a lot about the venture capital community, uh, and there are folks like Arlen Hamilton, who I know that you, you know really well, mm-hmm. uh, who is a um, successful venture capitalist with Backstage Capital. Uh, what is the, what's the capital landscape look like for people of color, black entrepreneurs, brown entrepreneurs? What, what's that look like these days?
4: Um, so, I interestingly enough, I actually was just in a webinar yesterday with uh, black and brown VCs. Uh, and one of the things that I thought was really instrumental that they were saying is that uh, there's this myth or belief that there aren't enough black and brown accredited investors. Um, the times have changed uh, drastically within the last five to 10 years, and there are plenty of people uh, who are accredited accredited investors and those are people who um, individually make two hundred thousand dollars i believe a year and uh or three hundred thousand dollars as a couple so uh if that is kind of the bar uh, for for making that amount of money and having an, an investor be able to actually give something meaningful to a company there's quite a few black and brown people out there that could come together and do things like a venture capital firm, uh, like what you see Arlen doing. And um, now they're kind of starting to get into traditional um, venture capitalist firms because now those firms are starting to see that they're missing a whole entire scope of people who are out there um, that they could invest in. And the recent Black Lives Matter movement has, has really made a dent in that and said, hey, we're out here. You know, we're, we're not your 1950s idea of, of what black and brown people are. Um, we are progressive. We have these ideas. We want to move forward. We need you to move forward with us. Uh, so for, for the most part, um, the venture capitalist firms are just starting to kind of wake up to that. <laughs> um, but as as many black and brown people, including myself, are doing, we have this cautious optimism that we're kind of waiting to see exactly what's going to happen and how the uh, needle's going to move.
1: Have there been some tough conversations with investors and support organizations in the St. Louis area, you know, bring them some details from the equity audit and say, you could be doing better. Uh, Have there been conversations like that with with St. Louis groups?
4: Yes. um, Out of uh, respect, I'm not going to give the name of the person who told me this, um, but I will say that it's a white woman and she said that she talked to other investors and they're not ready for the conversation (laughs) a lot of them are having a very very hard time um i didn't ask for details but i completely believe it this is a very very difficult conversation when you're you're used to doing things like pattern matching for white nerdy males uh, whenever you invest then you know, now you're telling the investor, okay, you can't look at that anymore because that's not the future. Um, I even tried to tell people, what does your customer base look like? If it's not white nerdy male anymore and it's starting to diversify, then you need to think differently <laughs> about the people that you have on your team and who they're targeting because you're gonna be out of business or people are not really gonna look at you anymore um, as, a, as a, a solid investor or somebody that is open enough to an idea or an opportunity. So those conversations are happening, and they are really hard right now.
2: We're talking with uh, Lashana Lewis. She's the executive director of the St. Louis Equity and Entrepreneurship Collective. It's uh, an organization that uh, is supported partially by, and uh, by a large extent, by the Kaufman Foundation and is also connected to BioSTL. Uh, Lashana, you know, as, what, what does success look like? You know, this collective has been around for a couple of years now. Take us into the future. What does success look like?
4: Um, To me, success looks like uh, everybody pretty much being able to be on the same playing field. Um, The the problem that we have is that uh, we have specialized playing fields for specialized uh, areas and then, you know, words like niche a niche, uh, a product and things like that, that are are too convoluted and too muddying the waters as far as uh, what a company looks like, uh, as far as like their success rates, as far as the audiences that they're targeting, as far as uh, basically the type of investors and the background that they have. It's all just kind of um categorize and separate it out and once we get rid of some of these categories once everyone can kind of compete on this level playing field um and and not have to go to one area or n- another area just to be successful then to me that's what success looks like um, a lot of people say you know oh the the black and brown people they just want charity so yeah i'm, I'm happy to throw A few bucks over to your for-profit or whatever or your entrepreneurial endeavor and it's like no, I don't want that I just want the same equal chance (laughs) Of the white nerdy male um, Component too. So if you're asking them to do a friends and family round um, I and you know, that's not something that everybody can do. I want that eliminated I want that taken out because then it's ridiculous. It's not putting everybody on the same ground. If you're just like everybody gets $100,000, do the best that you can with it. Um, If you mess up, uh, there's a backup, let's evaluate, let's see what went wrong and see if you're still interested in doing that endeavor and we will definitely be interested in you, then that's the kind of model that I would personally like to see. But again, this is about people sitting in a room talking and figuring all of this out. And, uh, so part of me is a little skeptical, you know, will this happen? Um, but to me in the future, that's what I want to see is that, you know, the, the, the as, as, uh, I believe her name was Kim Jones so eloquently, um, put it, you know, we don't, it's the thing that we're not asking for is revenge. We're asking for equality. So, uh, mm. to me, that is what, um, what that future would look like equality in all of its realms.
2: Well, Lashana, if people wanted to get more involved in the Equity and Entrepreneurship Collective here in St. Louis, uh, or just learn more about it, where can they go?
4: We have a website that we just kind of freshly updated, stlequitycollective.org, and it's exactly the way that it sounds. Um, you can also email me at info at stlequitycollective.org. And myself, and I actually have a staff member uh, that works under me, Haley uh, Johnston, who's actually been kind of baked into the entrepreneurial spectrum for some years as well. Uh, We both are heading up the collective and uh, one of us will get back to you.
2: Great. Lashana Lewis, the executive director of the St. Louis Equity and Entrepreneurship Collective. Thank you so much for joining
4: us.
1: Awesome. Thank you, guys. And we'll be back with more Nothing Impossible right after this.
0: Welcome back to Nothing Impossible, sponsored by BioSTL, driving the St. Louis innovation economy on KMOX.
2: All right, let's let's uh, let's check out Michael's interview with Joe Monahan. He's a scientist with Confluence Discovery
1: Technologies. So, Joe, tell us about this treatment you've come up with for COVID-19 patients, a little bit of background on the disease itself, and then where you think you can intervene.
5: So, COVID-19 is an acute respiratory disease caused by the uh novel coronavirus, SARS-CoV-2, and this disease can progress particularly in those predisposed individuals uh, to pneumonia and a condition called acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, and when you get this acute respiratory distress syndrome, subset of those folks require mechanical ventilation and they progress, a subset of those progress to death. Um, Progression in this acute respiratory distress syndrome is thought to be a result of a hyperactive immune response to the viral infection, and this leads to an uncontrolled inflammatory state in the lungs, um, and this is driven in large part to, by a certain class of proteins released from immune cells and diseased tissues called cytokines. And this excessive pro-inflammatory, pro-inflammatory cytokine production is called cytokine storm, or cytokine release syndrome. So our hypothesis is that if you can block this cytokine storm, you'll prevent progression of the disease, reverse the acute respiratory distress syndrome in the lung, and reduce the need for ventilation and reduce mortality in these patients. And so what our drug, ATI450, does is it blocks a particular cellular pathway That's responsible for making several of these key proteins or cytokines, thereby reducing the concentration of these cytokines in the lung, and that would have a concomitant effect on reducing the inflammation and decreasing the um, acute respiratory distress syndrome that's that's present.
1: How is this drug delivered to the patient? This is
5: um, an oral drug um, that would be given um, twice a day.
1: So inflammation is at the heart of this, and this is something you were looking at well before COVID. In fact, it was one of the cornerstones of founding Confluence Discovery Technologies. What are some of the other ailments that could be affected by this?
5: Yeah, it's a good question. I think with inflammation, um, over the past 10 years, it's been uh, a growing field suggesting that inflammation underlies many diseases, not just diseases of um, the immune system. And so um, when we're developing ATI-450, we had this broad impact on a lot of these particular proteins that regulate a number of different tissues. And so other diseases that we're looking at, we're looking at rheumatoid arthritis. This would have potential in diseases such as um, COPD, uh, potentially in inflammatory bowel disease disease. Um, potentially in heart disease where there's an inflammatory component of the heart disease. Um, And then there's a bunch of smaller indications um, that are more um, uh, personalized and often indications that we could potentially use this in as well.
1: So this has already been tested for safety and tolerability in people. That happened last year. What is the timeline from uh, going to get approval for human studies, to actually doing the studies, and then how long do they take? I guess, when will people be able to access this?
5: Yeah, so we would be moving in, particularly with, for instance, with this COVID-19 study. We'll begin begin the study in the upcoming days, and that will be a phase two study. And with that study, we'll be able to get an understanding in a subset of patients whether or not this has um, efficacy sufficient to move forward into a bigger group of patients, So we're in a Phase 2A study. It's called we would then move to a bigger set of of patients um, in a Phase 2B study and then move into an even larger set in a Phase 3 study. Um, In that the treatment for COVID-19 is a reasonably short treatment um, in comparison to other diseases such as heart disease, where this treatment is only a two-week treatment, you can move through these studies reasonably quickly, although as you get larger and larger as far as the, um, the study size, it would take longer. Generally speaking, going from where we are now in a phase 2A to on the market um, and for people to access, generally talking about um, three to six years.
1: So we've got arthritis use versus COVID use, and those may have a different uh, speeds for approval.
5: It would be a separate track for each treatment to get approved. The three to six years is more like the arthritis treatment. I think with COVID-19, um, there's expedited um, paths that one can take that's supported by the FDA that can shorten that timeline. So um, if this disease continues to progress and we have, you know, flares and uh, and, uh disease, we don't get a a treatment or a vaccine in short order, or there's another disease like COVID-19, which would be another respiratory virus. Um, You know, this could be uh, expedited to be shorter than that time frame.
1: Now, as you do this research into the pandemic, we are in the middle of a pandemic. A lot of places are taking precautions. A lot of places are working from home. You're located in the BioSTL building. What's it been like working there?
5: Yes, I think um, different companies had different approaches. Um, in our situation, um, we were exempt, um, and so we were allowed to continue to work. Um, having said that, um, we have about 45 scientists in confluence in St. Louis, and we took a number of precautions, which included um, moving to shift work, moving to work in seven days a week uh, to decrease the uh, number of people are, that are on site at any one time, uh, we went into social distancing. Everyone had appropriate PPEs with masks, etc. Um, and uh, we did continue to do the work in that we we are developing some this drug and other key drugs that we felt like it um, uh, was important for us to continue. And knock on wood, to date, everybody's been uh, been safe.
1: And how has the St. Louis ecosystem enabled your work? You grew out of Biogenerator. You're still located, even after your exit, still located in the BioSTL building. What is it about being located in St. Louis that helped to fuel your research?
5: Yeah, when we first started um, the company back in 2010, um, working with the Biogenerator, with Charlie Bolton and Eric Golvey, was instrumental in us getting started. It wouldn't have happened without them. And then when um, we came up with the idea of this biogenerator accelerator lab that allowed a number of companies to move into a particular lab space and not have to spend their funding on finding equipment in lab space, that, again, allowed us to progress. And so um, we were the first uh, people in the biogenerator accelerator labs. We stayed in there um, for a number of years. Um, we're still down in the Cortex Bioscience District. We moved into the old Crescent Building. We have our own space, but we're on a, just a floor above where the biogenerator and biostl are. So we have the fourth floor in that building. Still a lot of interactions between us and the various companies within uh, biostl and the biogenerator, and we still work very closely with them. So without the um, ecosystem and the support of biostl, the biogenerator, uh, washu, et cetera, Um, we wouldn't have been able to uh, create what we created to to be able to maintain the core of scientists that came out of Pfizer and would have been distributed across the country and have them remain in St. Louis. Out of the 45 people, we have about 28 that are ex-Pfizer scientists with a lot of experience in drug discovery. We were able to keep them here because of the uh, support that we got from BioGenerate and BioSTL.
1: You know, a lot of times people see a story about major layoffs at a big local company and they think, well, there's more bad news. But this is an example of how that could be, there could be a silver lining to those kinds of situations. People are enabled to go out and start their own companies and follow their dreams.
5: I think that's right. I think when we, you know, we had the opportunity to stay with Pfizer and and move to, to Cambridge and um but we had some ideas about trying to do drug discovery a little bit differently than what we were able to do with Pfizer being a big company. And we just made the decision that uh, we thought we could do something different, try something that might end up being better. And and we took the shot. We had a lot of support at the time. Um, And, uh, you know, it looks like it's starting to pan out. We have This compound in in clinical development we have a second compound for a different mechanism that'll be in clinical development in uh in in people within the next three or four months and then another one that will be in people early next year so all coming out of what we work that we did between you know 2010 and 2017 and
1: 18 well thanks for your time joe
5: it's my pleasure i appreciate
1: the call That's Joe Monahan with Confluence Discovery Technologies.
2: All right, so that's our show for the week. We talked magic, we talked equity, we talked solving COVID. It's a lot.
1: A lot of important conversations.
2: Yeah, we have them here.
1: And we'll have them next week. Stay tuned. It's Nothing Impossible, presented by BioSTL on KMOX.
0: TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively sports.
1: clock at four. Doncic.
0: The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on
1: fire. Yes,
0: and even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.